reading the scripture today from the book of Exodus, chapter 20. I'll be reading from two different places, verses 1 and 2, and then from verses 4 to 6. You may follow along in the bulletin or on the screens. And God spoke all these things, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you, brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commands. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, brother. Put this down to my height. <laughs> Good to see you today. Uh, we will continue our sermon series, uh, The Ten Commandments, and we come to the second commandment today. You shall not make an idol. Before we continue to dive in, let me say a word of prayer for us. Jesus, you are God, and we thank you, Lord, for gathering us on this cold winter day that we can be people who hear your word, that we can be surrounded by your spirit, that we can sing praises to our Heavenly Father. Thank you, Lord. Lead us in this time, Father. Deepen our love for you. Show us your grace. Amen. Amen. You know, when I was uh, dating Crystal a long time ago now, I remember sort of having a lot of fun but being in turmoil, because there came a point after our five months of dating, I didn't know what to do. I came to a crossroads because uh, I had some big decisions to make about life. And I didn't know whether or not to continue dating her because things were getting serious or to stop dating her so that I can have time to focus on what I need to focus on. My point was that I didn't want to drag her through the mud and muck of my decision-making. And so I decided to say, hey, let's take a break. She said, you breaking up with me? I was like, well, yeah. And that was a sad time. <laughs> Very sad time. <laughs> but what came out of that for both of us is something that we didn't know that was lurking underneath uh, in our hearts. That, that we have become idols of one another. That we, of course, admired each other and had a lot of fun. But that breakup, because I had a, some big decisions to make, didn't want to bring her through it. It just it showed us where our hearts were uh, before the Lord. I remember her reflecting on that time and saying, I really needed that. You know, I, I really realized how much I was idolizing the relationship and, and, and you to some degree, and how God has, had taken a back seat to that. And you know, even though I was confused during that time on what to do, when it comes down to God's love and care for his people, 
you know, God is never confused. He's never confused about the way that he is leading his people. He's never confused about his love over his people. He's never confused about how he's leading them. And that's what we see throughout the book of Exodus. The people cry out to God, and God hears their cry. And God comes to intervene in their situation. God does something for their hearts, soul, mind, and strength. He shows them that he is God, and there is no other. I am what I will be, God says. And then God began to overturn the idols in the land of Egypt. And they began to see the powerful God, the Lord, their God. And then God began to send Moses to Pharaoh to say, hey, let my people go. And this constant refrain was, let my people go so that they may worship and serve me. Let my people go that they may serve me. And each time Pharaoh didn't want to do that because they were service to him. He thought that he was God. And so God had to overturn those idols in Egypt, defeating every single one of them, even Pharaoh's son, whom God put to death for not letting his son go. What was God doing in the hearts of his people? God was showing them that there shall not be any rivals to his glory, to his honor, to his holiness, not so whatever, that he is the only God. He is the real thing. And so he was overturning the idols in their hearts and bringing them to a place of worship. So that's what we have here. God saving his people, bringing bringing them to himself so that he would be their God and they will be his people. God said, I'm the one who have delivered you. I've saved you from the house of bondage, from the house of slavery. And he brings them to himself. So we come to the second commandment, and so we already have the positive, right? God's saving love over his people. And so we come here in the negative, and God says, you shall not have any other competing God in your life. Because when the people came out of Egypt, they brought with them their personal God, idol, and their their, the, the, the national idol, the, the community idol, all the things that they thought they needed to give their hearts over to worship so that they can be favored, so that they may be delighted in. But they have been deceived there in Egypt, and they, they for, forgot the covenant that God had made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So God is bringing them to remind them that he is the only God. There is. So he begins to declare to them in this command, you shall not make for yourself a carved image. The Lord gives them a direct command here. And it is a strong language from the heart of God. But it's it's a language of grace as well. The Lord does not give this directive to his people so they can immediately break, but so that they can follow it. Be blessed by it. Be happy by it. Be free and able to be a blessing to others around them, meaning that they may carry on loving and serving God and others from their hearts. You notice God says here, you shall not make for yourself. It is not 
for you to create any type of carved image and that you may bow down to. What is the context? Why is the context saying this? Well, the most immediate context fall from verse 3, which we looked at last week. You shall have no other gods before me or besides me. You shall not make for yourself now a carved image or anything or likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water underneath. So it's it's evident to us from verse 3, and as we shall see later, that God does not want his people to make any type of image for worship. Because God had made his people in his own image that they may worship him. But through man's fallenness, through the corruption of man having broken God's command in the garden, now there's a distorted thinking. There, there's an inwardly turn to themselves because ultimately these idols are about one per, oneself being God and having something that I have created. Yes, God did make his people to create, move, and use things in the world, but not so that they can be their God because they are created in God's image. Therefore, they are to live, to worship and serve God. God says this in Genesis 1:26, "Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over everything, the fish of the sea, birds of the heavens, over the livestock, and over all the earth and everything that's creeping, every creeping thing that creeps on the earth." And so it doesn't make sense for God's people to turn around and to look at creation and say, "I'm going to make you into the likeness of something that's created so I can bow down to you, something that's lifeless, something that can't even speak back to them. But see, it came through their distorted thinking, through the corruption of their nature. And God, again, is overturning this in their hearts. So Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the three persons in the Godhead said, let us make Thank you. Can you hear me now? (laughs) So God says, you shall not bow down to them, you shall not serve them. So we will want to give our hearts over to worshiping things that we see. Even 
things that we make with our hands. This is what the Israelites did even while God was having a conversation with Moses up on the mountain. God had spoken these ten words, these ten commandments to them. And even while Moses is up there on the mountain with God, we see this in Exodus 32. The Lord said to Moses, go down for your people whom you brought out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. So in Aaron's heart, he answered the people's wishes by making an idol and worshipped the idol as the one that brought them out of the land of Egypt when clearly it was God who delivered them. God may, God may use what he created in service to him for saving their lives, but it's not his intention that they would turn around and worship the thing that he's created and use for his salvific purposes. So no credit for salvation is given to no one else for the saving of lives except God and God alone. Therefore, he is the object of our worship, and he decides on the worship for man. It's God who warrants it. He commands it because God knows how we are made. He knows that he has created us for worship. And everything that we are and all that we do it is meant for worship. Whether we eat or drink or whatever we do, God says, do it for his glory. So whatever manner of your life is, it needs to be for the one and only true God who is living, who is alive. And so we come to this place in our hearts, though, right, where we do want to erect a false representation of God for worship over against having the true representation of God in worship. Let's look at that. If I can find my notes here. Uh, false representation of God in worship. This is what the Bible indeed calls idolatry. This is what we've been talking about. God saying, you shall not make for yourself an idol out of any likeness anywhere to be on the face of the earth. So God forbids every sort of idolatry in the heart, mind, body, and strength. So God is expressing this point, and he is specifying what we are not to choose as idolatry. Anything that you see, anything that you touch shall not be used. Any imaginations that you have, things that you want to create, shall not be used in worship for, with God or for God. Because sometimes that's what happens, right? We think we can help God out. You know, let, let me have God plus this other thing in my life. Lord, I know you're telling me to let go of this relationship, but I want to have this in my life. I just can't let go. Lord, I want to, uh, I, I don't want to be honest with you about how I need to go and ask for forgiveness from my friend. I want to hold on to it. Lord, I feel empowered when I do have this bitterness of heart. When, when, when I, feel, I, I feel like if I'm vulnerable, I'm just going to crumble. And I will be taken advantage of. 
But the Lord forbids any type of idolatry. Friends, that could be idol, an idol in our hearts. Things that we hold on to, that we refuse to let go, that God says, I need your worship. I need all of you in worship. I need you to let go of that thing which is in your heart. You see, God has already spoken a word to us that sets us free. I have redeemed you. I have delivered you. I have brought you to myself. And you know what? Just like the children of Israel here, it's going to take time for that to work in their hearts, in their, in their minds, in their bodies, in their souls. It's going to take time for them to come to the realization that God is faithful and that God is immovable and that God would always be there. It's going to take some cycles of life to, to go through that, you know, ups and downs, if you will. And even the fact that they, while Moses is up on the mountain, they make an idol, shows in their hearts that they want something to cling on to. But God says, that thing is me. That thing is me. Come to me. Be honest with me about your heart. And so when we are praying in our homes, when we're praying alone to God, we can be honest about him. Um, with him about anything. We can be honest with him about anything that's on our hearts. We really can. But if we're distracted, we won't. We won't bring our whole hearts to him. So we have to guard that time. We have to guard it with all our might. We have to guard it and say, this is enough. God, I, I need to come before you and be ruthlessly honest here about where my heart is, because you forbid every sort of idolatry. And I know if I hold on to being silent, that becomes an idol for me as well. God created us for worship. If we don't worship the one true God, we'll find something else to take his place. And as we looked at last week, it, it can be a type of religion. It can be money, sex, power, friendship. Uh, vacation, where we will go, where we spend our time, what interests us. All good things, but not to be taking the place of God for worship. So we are going to make something ultimate in our lives that God meant for himself. He meant for the ultimate worship, the object of worship to be himself. And so it's been like that ever since the beginning. Every culture worships something. Every culture has something ultimate that it's running after for worship. And God is declaring that he must be the ultimate thing. A.W. Tozer, an evangelist, states this. He said, one of the marks of God's image in man is his ability to exercise moral choice. The teaching of Christianity is that man chose to be independent of God and confirm his choice by deliberately disobeying a divine command. This act violated the relationship that normally existed between God and his creation. It rejected God as the ground of existence and threw man back upon himself. Thereafter, he became not a planet revolving around the central sun, but a sun in its own right around which everything else must revolve. 
That's the end goal, isn't it? When we attach to an idol of any kind, when we make something else ultimate in our lives, that's the end goal, right? That thing must revolve around us. We take center stage. So for worship, though, God is the the authority for how we shall worship. We do not have the authority to make idols for the purpose of worship. That's not the authority that he has given us. So the making of idols is placing ourselves as a center and not God. When God is not center, we redefine and, and reduce God in our heart, soul, mind, and strength. What does God become? God becomes nothing to us when something else is the ultimate thing. So we, in turn, turn to sin, entrusting ourselves to turning away from God, and trusting in something else as being true when he's the only truth. We begin to define, define God in our own terms, who he is, what he will allow, what he thinks. Well, God is on my side. You know, God wants me to be happy so I can, you know, have whatever he told me not to have. God is on my side. He, he's a God of love so I can enter into a relationship with someone who's not a believer. That's kind of how it goes in our hearts. And the thing about artistic expression, because this is one matter that this commandment addresses, you know, whether or not we can have icons in the church. And of course, going with the definition, if it's the ultimate thing, if we are giving ourselves into worship to statues in, in the church or stained glass windows all around us, if we're giving ourselves into worship to those images, then they have become gods for us. But to beautify a place, to have art in your home, to have art in the church, to beautify, beautify the stained glass windows, it's not a sin in and of itself. It's when those things become the ultimate things in our hearts, and we literally are bowing down and worshiping those things as if whoever is depicted in that picture will answer our prayer. They will be with us. They will give us comfort. Sometimes our idols become the rabbit foots, the feet that's in our pockets. And so, you know, in the, in the life of the church, I was in a church one time, and this is not the bash this church, nor this minister, is only to illustrate a point that when I was in this church service, sitting there, listening to the sermon, uh, there was a little boy out back, and that was a huge plant in the foyer. Like I'm looking through the glass door now, <clears throat> there was a plant out there, and that was a little boy who was playing around this plant. And the only reason why I know it was a little boy out there, because the pastor made it his job to shout towards the back to the little boy to say, hey, get off of that plant. That is a $600 plant. <laughs> I'm like, oh, my goodness. If you, I mean, you got some problems. If you're paying $600 for a plant out in the floor here. <laughs> but my point, anything can become an idol, right, before us in the, in the, in the house of worship. 
You know, some, some places of worship. It can be the furniture. We are to take care of things, but it can be as simple, simple as that. You know, guarding objects inside of the worship service, thinking that they would have some kind of ultimate place. No, God has the ultimate place. Yes, we want to take care of our things. Yes, we want to be vigilant about being careful, but when it becomes utmost, we become upset that we become offended, personally offended, and we are ready to do damage to the fellow image bearers of God. And that should not be. So these, so God is the one who wants to create intimacy among us. But when we hold on to our idols, the intimacy fades away because idolatry is false intimacy. Through idolatry, we will hurt someone. We will ruin relationships. We will ruin whole communities through holding on to idols. So idolatry impacts our children, right? And that's, we'll get into this later, but that's kind of where the text goes with it. Who will be blessed, who will not be blessed. So it will impact us in our lives. And so with these idols, you know, within the culture here in Israel, they were very attractive to them. And there are reasons why they were very attractive to them. There's something that uh, these idols promise, but they didn't deliver on. You know, I was looking at this from theologian Douglas uh, Stewart. He was looking at the historical background of why these idols were so attractive to the people of Israel. He says, for one, they guarantee something. People assume that the presence of God or a goddess was guaranteed by the presence of of an idol. And so, the, you know, think about it. You, you take an idol and then you, you want the goddess, the god of goddess to, to come into this idol. And so you, you think that there is something that's permanent here that you're plant, praying to, something that is of divinity that you're praying to. The second thing he said is because of selfishness. Idolatry was an entire materialistic system of thinking and behavior. Sometimes it was called this fertility cult. You feel like you can get something out of it if you pay homage uh, to a god or goddess. It was easy. You know, you can, you can just, you know, show your generosity of worship by offering sacrifices. And so this is what these idols require, that you offer sacrifices. And so you just Go to them and do what you want to do to offer your sacrifice, and it's just that easy. It was normal. Many nations participated in the worship of idolatry around Israel, and this was one of the reasons that God was bringing them into the land because the nations that were in the land refused to bow their knees before the God, the creator of the universe. They had heard of him. But they still would not let go of their idolatry, sacrificing all that they had, even their own children at times. And it got so terrible with those nations that God says, I'm about to pluck them from out of the earth. I'm about to do away with them. He called his nation 
to go to exact judgment on them. And there is some type of, uh, some type of logic. You know, the, the idea that this idol is like a general practitioner, you know, you ha- it was responsible for all the various uh, deities, and you had a divine duty to it, giving your mind and heart to it. It just seemed logical because they set up a system for people to adhere to. It was pleasing to the senses. But the thing about these idols, they couldn't do anything. They would bring food. <laughs> you know, that was a common saying that the idols could do everything except feed themselves. And so people brought their food offering to the idols because they couldn't feed themselves. That was, that's a, one of the basic parts of life for you to be able to feed yourself, to ingest food. That's what living beings do. And so when we give ourselves over to idols, we're giving ourselves over to that which has no life at all. And so God forbids us to carry out worship in this way. So in order to cling to the lifeless idol, we turn from the living God. And God says, no, I do not want you to ever turn away from me because I am always here for you. In order to cling to worthless idols, we turn away from worshiping God, bowing down to him, giving our hearts to him. In order to cling to loveless idols, we turn away from serving God, showing our generosity instead of to the idol, to God and his people, serving him. So whenever we want to move away from idolatry in our hearts, there has to be a declared moment, right? It goes something like this. God, I will give you my full attention. Show me the better path to living before you. If there is any bitterness of heart, pride, disappointment, contempt, show me where to repent of it and let go of it. So we can come and reverse the vow that we've made. Because there are times in our lives when we do become hurt, right? We become hurt, and then we make a vow. Whenever we make a vow to not be hurt in that way, we are making an idol because we're saying, I have to protect myself because God will not. I make a vow not to get in those situations again, never to trust anyone in that way again because it was too painful. So I'm going to double down and protect myself. And so years go by and we're having challenges in our relationships and we don't even know why. But the thing that it's not looking to is a vow that we made when we were 12 years old, 14, 15, never to get hurt in that way again. God knows your needs. He sees where you have been hurt. He sees where healing is taking place, and he is doing it. But perhaps we have to move back into our stories, right, and examine our stories and say, God, show me where I once made a vow or double down on an idol that I'm not seeing. Help me to see it, and God will help you. You know, one of our cousins is going through this right now. They are growing in Christ, reading the Bible, uh, 
going to church often, being a part of prayer meetings. They're hungry for God, and then they're fasting and praying with groups, other groups of people, and they're realizing that, oh, the thing that keeps coming up is what happened in my formative years. I think God is telling me to do something with that. And that may be your story here today. God may be telling you to do something with that because it's gone underground for so long. Friends, there are false representations of worship, and God says we shall not adhere to those. We have to come honestly to him to examine our hearts. But there are also true representations of God in worship, the things that God has chosen for us, the way that he's chosen for us to worship. God says here in verse 5, For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. What is this jealousy of God? This jealousy of God is who he is. God is the one that comes in and to bring the protection over his loved ones. God safeguards those that he loves. The Bible says in Deuteronomy 4.32, For the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. In Deuteronomy 5, 9 through 10, you shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Even in Deuteronomy 6, for the Lord your God in your midst is a jealous God. Lest the anger of the Lord your God be kindled against you and destroy you from off the face of the earth. Some other theologians uh, define jealousy, Wayne Grudem defines it as God's jealousy means that God continually seeks to protect his own honor, not wanting his name to be profaned. Kurt Willem defines it this way, the jealousy of God is his holy commitment to his honor, glory, and love that manifests itself in the salvation of his people and the just condemnation of all who stand opposed to him. And so we do have, we understand jealousy because this is one of the attributes of God that we share with God. So we as human beings, we feel jealous. You know, the feelings of resentment against someone because that person's robbery or success or advantages. You know, it's characterized by our, by or proceeds from this suspicion of fears or envious resentment. Other ways is defined in other dictionaries like this, a feeling or, or showing an envious resentment to someone or their achievements, possessions, or perceived advantages. Positively, it's being vigilant and maintaining and guarding something, officially protecting a one's rights and possessions. So it can go both ways, right? It can be a negative jealousy what someone has, or it can be positive in protecting someone and intolerant. And so we find this in God. God is going to protect his love relationship with his people. 
God, God's jealousy means that he is going to protect his honor. God is not going to let his reputation be profane. Only God is the one who is supposed to be publicly esteemed. God puts it this way in Isaiah 48. The former things I declared of old, they went out from my mouth, and I announced them. Then suddenly I did them, and they came to pass. This is glorious. God, what God tells us he's going to do, he tells us beforehand, so that when it comes to pass, we know that God did it. Because I know that you are obstinate. He's talking to his people that have gone away from his commands. You are obstinate, and your neck is an iron sinew, and your forehead brass. I declared them to you from of old. Before they came to pass, I announced them to you, lest you may say, my idol did them, my carved image, and my metal image commanded them. So God is not going to allow some idol to take the credit for his honor. He's not going to allow his name to be defamed. God says in Isaiah 48, For my name's sake I defer my anger for his people. For the sake of my praise I restrain it for you, that I may not cut you off. You see, God doesn't want to cut his people off, but show everlasting love to them. Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tried you in the furnace of affliction. For my own sake, for my own sake, I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory I would not give to another. And that is glorious, that God would not give his glory to another. That we have one who looks to protect us at all times because of his namesake. We're in that. God is also jealous for his holiness. Only God is worthy of complete devotion. He is holy. And this is what Joshua is trying to get the people to see in Joshua 24, that God is a holy God. And so we need to forsake all else and serve him and love him. God is jealous for his love. God visits the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation that hate him. And so you see what God is communicating here to the community. Look, when you give yourself over to idols of any kind, you will teach your children the same bad habits, the same incorrect ways of worship, the same heart disposition. You will teach them to your children. And they will hate me. And because they hate me, I will show hate towards them. God will judge them. It is not saying that because of the father's sin, now that sin is sort of transferred to their children. No, God is saying, no, you, because you have left me, moved away from me in your heart, now it's going to impact future generations. And they will be judged for their sin, just as you will be judged for yours. So idols have the ability to corrupt future generations. And so we see here that God would not have any rivals, but God longs to show his steadfast love to thousands of those who love him and keep his command. So God pours out his love 
on those who worship him faithfully as he commands. The promise is, is that they will dwell in God's house forever. The promise is that God will bring the true representation of himself, who's none other than Jesus. Jesus is the exact representation of God. Jesus is the one who is undoing the idols in our hearts, the false idols in our hearts. Jesus is the one who's moving upon us to show us that God is beautiful, that he is worthy, and that he deserves our worship. Jesus is the one who's leading us to make God the priority in our lives so that our heart, soul, mind, and strength can be upon God and God alone. Jesus is the one who is this true representation who died on the cross for our sin to show us that God means business to keep us away from idols. God means business to bring us to himself. God means business to bless future generations. And this is, this is the news that God is telling us for our children so that we will not live in fear that his mind is not stayed on them. They are. His mind is stayed on, on them. And so we see here that the Lord has done a marvelous thing for us and given us this command that we can live by his grace, that we would know that God is a God who is serious about his love for us. He's jealous for it. He's zealous for it. He has a holy compassion for us. And so that we can seek God to honor him through humbling ourselves to him and worshiping him as the only one true God. So that we can seek to live holy lives like God, keeping ourselves unstained from the world. God never turns us away, but draws us near. We can seek to love God through obeying his commands. And this is what Jesus said, if you love me, you will obey my commands. And we stay connected to the vine, receiving all the benefit and the nourishment from him. And we say our eyes upon the Father who loves us. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for blessing us today with your word. Lord, you always have your mind steady upon us. And that, God, humbles us in itself. There are many things that we may struggle with in this life. But, Lord, you have completely obliterated for all times every single rival. And we thank you for that. We thank you for giving attention to our hearts and obliterating those things that we think that we need, the things that we think need ultimate place of you. But God, you are the ultimate God who loves us to a thousand generations. Thank you for your eternal life in Jesus. Amen.